You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Off the Record. My name's Jordan Runtog. Thanks so much for listening. Our latest chapter concerns the rise of Ziggy Stardust, Bowie's breakthrough persona that would become arguably his most enduring artistic legacy. The androgynous alien poet messiah took inspiration from various elements of David's past interests and present obsessions, ranging from pulpy 50s sci-fi TV shows to rock and roll burnouts, occult American country act, Eastern philosophies, and an overall interest in show business artifice. Ziggy was, as David would later say, his grand hitch painting. David developed the concept throughout much of 1971, but it's fair to say that Ziggy Stardust would have turned out quite different without the involvement of some new friends he met that August. They were an unabashedly outrageous gang of actors and performers from Andy Warhol's factory scene in downtown Manhattan. They traveled to England to perform Warhol's extremely off-Broadway play, Pork. The groundbreaking avant-garde production shocked audiences by taking aim at pretty much every social taboo you could imagine, and maybe a few that you can't. It was innovative, it was funny, and it was brave. David loved it, and he loved the cast even more. He was entranced by their bold attitude and style, an unmissable blend of gritty New York street and gaudy old Hollywood glamour. They appreciated David's own artistic fearlessness and deep interest in theatrical production, dating back to his days studying mime under Lindsay Kemp. In short, they were kindred spirits. The pork crowd would have a marked effect on David's life and career, changing his relationship to performance and inspiring him to new creative heights. They also had a hand in launching him into the pop stratosphere. David's manager, Tony DeFries, tapped the Warholites to head up the New York office of his management company, Main Man. Though few had any actual business experience, they improvised. Hey, they were performers, after all. I'm so thrilled to talk to a genuine Warhol superstar and legend of the alternative art scene, Ms. Cherry Vanilla. A list of her accomplishments is practically a podcast series in itself. I highly encourage you to check out her 2010 memoir, Lick Me. 
She's a DJ, an actress, an activist, a poet, and a punk rock pioneer whose first backing band later evolved into the police. After starring in the London production of Pork, she was hired to work at Main Man as Bowie's public relations manager. Unlike most of her Warhol compatriots, she actually had a substantial professional background, having worked in the real-life madman world of advertising in the mid-60s. The experience would come in handy when promoting David to the world. It was she who crafted some of the tall tales that surround his legend to this day. For a glorious stretch in the early 70s, she and David were friends, lovers, and artistic comrades. I'm so excited to share her story of how she helped launch the Starman into orbit. I was trying to write an introduction for you, and I didn't know where to begin. I mean, DJ, Warhol superstar, Bowie publicist, rock singer, author, artist. I mean, I I didn't know where to start. You know, um, I really sometimes, I mean, I've met, hung out with, had relationships with, you know, mental or physical with, you know, iconic artists, you know, Vangelis and... Um, oh God, going all the way back in my life to, you know, Donna Michi when I was a child and Joel Schumacher, a filmmaker and a t- artist. And, but, you know, the two that have become so iconic are Bowie and Warhol. And I can't believe how iconic they've become. They are more than just, you know, like the greatest artist of our generation, but they've achieved this uh, stature of changing society in a way and giving lots of oddball kids and artists a whole new outlook on life. They've really reached a status. And I can't believe I had, you know, this intimacy with each of them, you know, with Bowie, both mental and physical and with Warhol, just kind of mental and, you know, really mental in both ways. (laughs) But, um, you know, I'm the garbage man's daughter, you know what I mean? And um, I think the value of my life, now that I'm 77 and I can like really start looking back on it, is the intimacy I achieved with so many of these men. And I'm thinking how, because uh, I gave up sex at 40 and, um, and that changed my relationship with men. But I think women would love, most women would love to have mental relationships with men. And I think a lot of men, I don't know, it's not as offered to women as much as sexual intimacy. You know what I mean? And I think that's the whole thing with the whole groupie era thing. Like what was offered to you in the short time you ever got to encounter these people that were going to be in town for 24 hours or something, and that could be it. So what was offered was sexual intimacy. And so I think as a groupie, you just said, okay, I'll take it because then there'll be that many more hours. I'll be there to try to have some mental intimacy with them, which was so much more valuable, which is what you wanted so much more. And then of course, creative intimacy with other artists. And in my case, I don't know, it seemed to be 99% men in a way. I don't know why that was a couple of women here and there who, um, I worked with or whatever, but, um, I look back at it now and I think that's what I was so lucky to have was that kind of, and I still have it. And as I said, once I gave up sex, I I started to have it even more because when you're not putting out a sexual vibe, you're not scaring men either. You know what I mean? Especially if you're putting one out in your (laughs) seventies, God God knows. But, um, 
so yeah, it's been it's been an interesting trip, and I'm looking back at it like, you know, these days and saying, well, you know, what was my life worth? And um, and there are some people trying to make a movie of my life, so they're always asking me those questions, you know, and why you and blah blah blah. So I'm always thinking about it for them. Anyway, yeah, I I, I wouldn't trade it with anybody, really. (laughs) I don't think so, no. So. I was rereading your book, and the path of your life is just so incredible. Take it back to the very beginning. How did this all start for you, growing up as a little Irish Catholic girl in Queens to Madison Avenue and getting involved with the theater of the ridiculous and getting cast in pork? Tell me how it all began for you. Well, the Copacabana had a big influence on me because otherwise I wouldn't have known the life outside of Queens that I knew, my father working for the sanitation department. But because my mother was a telephone operator where the Copa was, um, I got to see like glitzy, glamorous nightlife and incredible entertainers. When I was, you know, six, seven years old, my father started, you know, letting me watch the shows and everything. And um, that gave me another vision, like a dream life. And I couldn't even really say it to my family. I couldn't, in my family, Irish Catholic working class, we, nobody called themselves an artist. You know, you just didn't, they'd say, oh, learn how to type, forget about that. You know? <laughs> um, or, or, or get married or, you know, so I had to kind of keep it to myself in a way, although I took dance lessons and was in all the plays in school and all that kind of stuff. But um, when I graduated high school, I was 17. It was 1961. My parents didn't have the money to send me to college. I certainly wasn't a scholarship winner. And um, so, and it was assumed, you know, you're just going to get married or be a secretary anyway. So just get out there and work. Advertising was still like a very glamorous field, kind of Doris Day, Rock Hudson movie material and stuff, and Madison Avenue. So, and I had a boyfriend in my senior year in high school, and he was, he worked at an ad agency. So I got a job there, and um, that was Sullivan Stauffer, Cola and Bellis. That was my first job. And it was fabulous. You know, I, it was a fabulous world. And it was, you know, a cushy job. I mean, I, my family, everybody worked so hard at what they did. And advertising was cushy. I mean, there was so many coffee breaks and long lunches <laughs> and cocktails at five. The amount of hours you put in every day, unless you were on a TV shoot or something. And there were handsome young men in it. It was kind of a, a great field. So I really enjoyed it. And so I kind of moved up in it, you know, uh, when, when there an opportunity arose, there was a lesbian woman actually, who was a producer. And I was like a lowly, I had a lowly job in the radio TV production department, but she was leaving and she saw my value and she started training me. And when she left, I took her job and I became a radio TV producer. And I was like, I don't know, 19, 20 wow. tops. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I went to school. Uh, I went to the new school um, for social research at night with Arnold Eagle, was the teacher. And But I kind of dropped out after a while because I was learning so much more on the job. And that's kind of always how I seem to learn best. And I was loving it. I loved the whole, you know, radio TV process, mechanical process side of it, uh, 
entertainment side. I loved all of it. So that's how I did that. And I stayed, I actually had like a full-time advertising job for eight years. And then, you know, as time went on, I got interested in theater of the ridiculous and pretty much I was only freelancing for like, I would just do a TV production job, something when I needed the money, but I was more already into like theater and uh, music. And I, I had already moved on from advertising and, you know, that's how I then started. I was in one little play and then, Andy Warhol saw me in it, and when he took Pork to London in 1971, he didn't like the girl who was playing the lead in the New York Pork. I wasn't in Pork in New York, and so I auditioned for him, and um, I got the lead to play the uh, Pork in the in the play in London, and um, that's where we met David Bowie, and you know, on and on from there. So. It's quite a quite an odyssey. <laughs> How did you you first enter uh, David's orbit when you were when you got to England? Well, we got a lot of publicity when we went with Pork because we were Warhol people, and so we were in the newspapers a lot and all of that. And he was not yet that famous. He had had Space Oddity, but he had three or four albums already that you know just didn't make it. He was, he was still playing little teeny clubs and stuff like that. So we were like on equal footing artistically. In fact, we were like kind of bigger than he was at that moment in a way. You know what I mean? We were, we, we had all the publicity and, you know, Warhol comes to London, although they ripped us to shreds. But, <laughs> but anyway, so he knew of us and we knew of him because Lee Childers kept up a lot with, um, the press because he took photographs for a lot of rock magazines in America and stuff. And he had heard of David Bowie. David Bowie had come to America a couple of years earlier on like a radio interview tour. He couldn't do any gigs because of work permits, but he did like a radio tour. So some people knew about him. I didn't know about him then. Most people didn't know about him. There's a tiny piece in Rolling Stone about him that Lee had seen. And we were on our way to rehearsal for Pork one day in London, and um, we saw a poster for him playing at a little club, the country club. And so we went to see him that night, Lee Childers, Jane County, and me. And it was him on acoustic guitar, Rick Wakeman on piano, and Mick Ronson on electric guitar. And people sat on the floor. It was like, you know, kind of a hippie club. And, it, well, it was just past the hippie era, sort of. And he still had, like, long blonde hair and wore, you know, pleated kind of silky pants and yellow Mary Janes. And, and um, I'm not sure if Hunky Dory was out already or had just been recorded, but they were already writing songs and for Ziggy Stardust. So he was in, in between that. Um, he played mostly Hunky Dory stuff. And I see they didn't have a drummer or a bass player or anything. So I guess, and that Ziggy stuff hadn't come out yet. So it was kind of in that era. And um Angie was there and she did the lights and the sound. And so we went up to her and introduced ourselves and said, you know, we're in the cast of Andy Warhol's Pork. And she called, oh, David, love to meet you, darling. So, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so, and he had written that song, Andy Warhol. And so when he did it on stage, he introduced us as the cast members and asked us to stand up and take a bow. So we did. 
I popped out one tit, which was some a gesture I did all through the play because I was playing the part of Bridget Polk, Bridget Berlin. And that's how Polk comes from pork, comes from Polk, whatever. And in, in real life, she was always like jabbing a, a needle with speed in, right through her jeans and popping out one tit. So that was like a gesture I did in the play. And so afterwards, we went to a discotheque together and we all danced and hung out. And then they came to see the play one night along with Danny Gillespie and uh, Tony DeFries. And of course, they came backstage and then we all went out again and we all, we hung out and they invited us to their house for tea and we'd go out there for tea on a Sunday afternoon. And so we all became friends in that way. And pork lasted like a month and then it was supposed to move to the West End and we never did. And so we all kind of went our separate ways after that. But, you know we could see what he could be, you know, he was so talented and so charismatic that, you know, we could see this was a guy we should tell everybody about back home. And so we did. And, um, Tony Zanetta got to be really good friends with him, maybe even better friends than us more quickly. They related. And, um, so then in September of 72, when Tony DeFries was managing David in, in, in England and decided it was time to bring him to America to tour, he, he hired Tony Zanetta to be like the head of Main Man, the management company. And Tony basically called me up one day. I was living in Connecticut, I think, with the Berkshires. He called me up one day, and I wasn't working. I was probably writing, but not earning any money. And... um he said, oh, we could use somebody to answer the phones. We just got a little office on 58th Street in Manhattan. So I said, okay. So I went to New York and I, you know, was taking on the job supposedly of answering the phones. But, you know, I had background in, first of all, I had, my high school was like a business school. So I had background in all the business machines and proper letter writing and all that other kind of stuff. And Tony and the other people around DeFries and David at the time, well, David was still in England, but they didn't have that kind of sort of practical office experience and, um, and corporate structure that I had known. So it all of a sudden I was like, you know, ordering fax machines and desks and typewriters and telephone service and chauffeur service. And, you know, so I was like running the office and then little by little we were adding people to help. And then when David, when Tony brought David over for the first tour, Tony Zanetta and Lee Childers went out on the road with him. And I, at the beginning, I stayed behind to run the office and um, have them check in with me and keep everything going. And then eventually I got an assistant and I heard somebody. And then because Tony DeFries wouldn't let the press talk to David Bowie, because he kept it like they couldn't get access. So they got to talk to me. And, <laughs> and, uh, and since I seemed to be a natural at that, you know, even though we didn't have the internet and everything. So I didn't even know that much about David back then. I mean, we, it was crazy because everything was going so fast. So I just made up a lot of facts when they'd ask me things. <laughs> and, 
because truly it was, it, 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 there was no time. I mean, I was also taking care of like, like I would go ahead if they were going to go to a certain city, I would go ahead by a week or something to that city and I'd get myself on the radio and, you know, do interviews and stuff uh, so that we could drum up ticket sales. So then I would go on to the next city and I would also like do little Bibles for them, like where the dry cleaner was, where the late night bar was, where the best Indian restaurant was. You know, I was doing all these little chores uh, and publicity and then I would go on to the next city. But then because I wanted to see all the shows, I would fly back to the other city where I had just been to catch the show because I didn't want to miss a show. Cause you know, that, that was like the most fabulous time. That was Ziggy Stardust time, you know, the most fabulous time, gorgeous young David and gorgeous young Nick. And so I was on planes, you know, I remember one day I was on three planes that day, three different cities that day. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. And I loved being able to see all the shows. And um, I missed one or two. I missed New Orleans. I never got to New Orleans. Isn't this funny? I'm still I never have been to New Orleans. I've got to get there one day. But um, I missed a couple of cities here and there. But that's mostly how it happened. And then um, from there, I, you know, that was it. Bowie rose like a star and uh, that we knew he was. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. 
and paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Thinking of all the promotional work you were doing to try to hype David, was he a hard sell in 1972? Or did people catch on quickly that this was somebody to take notice of? Well, thanks to my publicity. Right? No. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. See, the thing is, the thing is, he came at a certain time when the sexual look, sexuality is always going to grab people. And I didn't have I didn't even know how to do PR. I knew how to do advertising, but PR for a rock star, PR for anybody, I never did. It was a little different. And um, I didn't have a strategy. None of us had a, even DeFries didn't have, he had his own strategy for management, but he didn't really have a PR strategy except, well, he did in a way because like he had karate uh, clad um, uniformed um, bodyguards, you know, around David when nobody was trying to get near David, you know what I mean? And he told the press that David wouldn't do any interviews, uh, even though they weren't banging down the door for interviews. So yes, he did. He did. I shouldn't say that about, cause he did. We all played a part in the PR, but on the sexuality end, which I knew would get the talk going, it, it, you know, there was this edge where people wondered, was he gay or straight? Everybody wondered, was he gay or straight? You know? So that I knew was like a point to get people talking, especially the people I knew in, in New York and Los Angeles and all that. And so as time went on, when he said he was bisexual and I, and I at the same time was saying he was great sex being a woman. And I'm, so I'm sort of intimating he was hetero and then he's saying he's bi and then somebody else says uh he's gay and so i think that helped boost the publicity a lot and then tony's tony defries's genius which he he was at management and um and you know all of us together lee childers doing all the photos and uh, tony managing the tours and you know we were actors, so we looked at it like improvisation, like we were given a play to play, and it was total improv for all of us. And in a way, that maybe is what made it so different and so fresh and so new-seeming and stuff, because we didn't really know what we were doing. We just loved him, believed in him, were having a ball, getting paid hardly any money at all. We were doing it for the love of it, which corny as it sounds, when you do something for the love of it, that's real success, you know? So, you know, that's the way it, it went. And it was a, you know, wonderful, marvelous, incredible time in our lives, you know, an incredible time. And we were young and hot and you, you know, we were having a ball. So, um, I forgot your question. <laughs> Whatever it was, you answered it. I just, I mean, there's, a great quote you gave in an interview once that I loved. Life presents people to me and I say yes or no. What made you say yes to David Bowie? What was it about him that, that attracted him to you? Well, first of all, I think there's a thing called pheromones and aura and a, a spirit body. So I think there's a chemical element and a spiritual element in 
what people like I meet a lot of people and some people I can't remember their name after 10 times meeting them and other people the minute I, you, you know you've experienced this too the minute you meet them like you know there's something this person's going to be in your life so there was that but of course I didn't meet him right away I saw him on stage the first I was in the audience so the first thing I saw was his artistry and his he was just born to do it. He was just born to be a rock star. I, I, when he came out on the stage, even though he, he didn't have all the Ziggy look together yet, which really helped you know him sell himself to the public, he was born to be a rock star. You just saw it. You knew it. The way he related musically, you know, he could play the guitar. He had a beautiful voice. His songs had some even humor in them. His lyrics were fabulous. His connection with the audience was instant. And you could tell everybody just, you could hear a pin drop in the room. And it was just a little club. So he already had that aura. He already had that thing. So that was on stage. So then when afterwards, when we got to meet him up close, you know, the vibration was right there. You This vibration of like, yeah, this person, I'm I'm not letting this person go. This person is going to be in my life, you know. And so I can't explain it any other way than that. And plus, he was so down to earth and friendly and funny and easy to meet. It was easy. He was easy. He was comfortable. You know, we were comfortable with him and he was comfortable with us. And he treated us like equal artists or even, you know, whatever. And... I guess, you know, it was just that thing that one can't really explain what it was. It was just something I knew, you know, we all knew. Although Jane County and Lee, they, afterwards when everybody talked, for them, he wasn't rock and roll enough. And so they were a little bit like, oh, he's kind of a hippie folk singer. But I knew because Mick Ronson, was going to make them more rock and roll. And even though I hadn't heard the Ziggy Stardust stuff yet, uh, with guitars and drums and all that kind of stuff, you knew that with Mick Ronson, he was going to be more electric soon. And um, and that he had to go that way in a way to be the rock star I envisioned. And um, so I, I saw that immediately. And um, they were like, oh, okay. But then, of course, they, they saw... And they saw the other aspect of him, you know, the charisma for sure. And um, I like the guys he hung out with, Rick, Rick Wakeman and Mick Ronson. In fact, I thought Mick Ronson was, you know, oh my God, I was so, you know, sexually attracted to Mick more than David. But, but that's because David had a wife also, and um, you know, she was there. <laughs> but, uh, but Mick, I scared to death. I never had sex with Mick Ronson, <laughs> but I became to death. Why? <laughs> because I came on so heavy from uh. New York with the sexuality and Mick is, is such a, you know, such a small town boy from Hull. I mean, have you ever been to Hull? I have not. No. <laughs> it's in the very Northern tip of the UK of, of England rather. And it's really, I mean, he was a small town boy, you know, and I was coming on like, you know, right away wanting to go to bed with him that night, you know, and that just was too much for him. But we became friends, of course. And uh, and I just adored him. Oh, God, I adored him. So anyway, um, yeah, that's that's what I saw. 
What do you think that, that David learned from all of you? I feel like you were such a, a huge influence on his life as well as, as, as uh, him on yours. Uh, what do you feel like that, that he, he, he got from all of you? It seems like you gave him permission in a lot of ways to be more himself and confidence. And that's what he gave to, you know, the world too, to kids who were confused about whatever their sexuality or, you know, their being a nerd or whatever. But um, first of all, on a, I don't know, geographic basis, he always wanted to know more about New York, I think. He, he liked Lou Reed and all of that, and he had made that one trip to America. And he liked our New York streetiness, that we would like New York street urchins, actors in the kind of theater. Like the kind of theater we had been doing in New York was like on the same level he was doing in London with Lindsay Kemp. You know, it was small theaters. Nobody made any money. You made your own costumes. And, you know, uh, it was far out avant-garde kind of. And so I think that interested him that we were like, we were kind of doing the same thing. Ours wasn't mine. His was mine. But it was on the same level. And uh, it was like off of Broadway. And so he wanted he wanted information about that. And um, he wanted to be associated, I think, with that kind of artistry and uh, theatricality. And also, um, you know, the Americanness of us in a way. Uh, and, you know, on a, on a business level, like how radio worked in America, how the uh, newspapers worked in America, like in England, you know, how the newspapers are they're national. So you get, you get in one year, you're a star in the country, but in America, the radio and the, and the newspapers and stuff are also regional or were then, you know? And so you have to do it for a lot of different regions, for a lot of different types of people in America in each city you visit and so forth. And you have to learn to relate to a lot of people in different ways and stuff. And, and our freedom, I think our, our, although we thought we were so free sexually, but when we got to England, to London, we we met a lot of people, in, including the Bowies and a lot of other people who were, you know, already way free sexually. They just called it kinky over there, you know. And um, but I think the fact that he could be himself around us, and if it was sexual, it was sexual, and if it was business, it was business, and and the fact that we could all play these different roles with him, you know, and uh, and yet kind of be on his level. Of course, he rose to stardom way above any level we ever achieved of stardom. But we kind of always stayed on that same thing where we were friends on an intimate on many levels. I'm getting back to that intimacy thing of mental intimacy. We could exchange ideas. We could understand. I, I, you know, I remember once I worked for, I wouldn't say who it was, but I, I did some work once for a famous director and I said, what is it you need from me? He said, I need somebody who anticipates my needs. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> That's a very male thing to say, I feel like. A very male thing to say, right? And But it got me, you know, on my toes. And um, so in a way, we we had a shorthand with each other when it came to showbiz Bowie and us, you know? And so even if it was like arranging the tour bus or, you know, make sure his clothes came back from the cleaners or, you know, we got to do it with, you know, fellow artists and friends. And 
And we didn't mind all this practicality that had to go with it. That was just the business side of it. So I think he probably appreciated that in us, you know. We And we never had, like, big egos about it. Like, people often say to me now, like, oh, well, you made Bowie's famous. I said, no way. I was part of a team of a lot of people. And when you get a lot of people together and the, their energy is all going in the same direction, that's how you achieve things. And so I was a part of it. I would never take big credit like I did this, I made him a star. No way. So I think it was that. Like we were all in a play together. He was in the play. Like we lived our lives like in a play. Okay, I'm going to play the role of a PR lady now and I'm going to play the role of a tour manager now and a president of Main Man or whatever Tony's not was playing. And, and he was playing the part of the rock star and we all – improvised our roles, you know? So I, I think that must have kept him interested and excited in us as much as we were interested and excited in him, you know? And then, of course, one day he moved on from us and learned things from other people, but we moved on from him also. So, you know, that's the way it goes. In this play that you were all performing, was, is there a climax for you? Is there a moment that really crystallizes everything that is just a golden moment that you hold on to? Oh, it was the first time I had sex with him, for sure. <laughs> That'll do it. That's a good, a more, more literal climax than I meant, but still, but a very good <laughs> Well, on the mental climax part, yeah, I, I tell this a little story in the book, and, and it really meant a lot to me. Um, and it wasn't any great creative thing we did together or worked out. To, I mean, I, I really got off on making the TV commercials on him for Diamond Dogs and stuff like that. That was great, because... I was taking my expertise and experience at the time and with very little money making, you know, TV commercials for him and radio commercials and stuff. And that I, I took great pride in. And But um, there was a moment that I loved a lot. And it was when we were in London and he was doing a show in London um, and I was in charge of who he was allowed to talk to in the press. And everybody wanted an interview. This is when he was already be had become pretty big. Everybody wanted an interview. So I chose, you know, the two or three people that we were going to give interviews to. And uh, I chose this one guy and um, he promised me a front page picture and story and all that. And uh, so I promised that to David and, uh, and he was at soundcheck the day the paper came out and he wasn't on the front page. And, uh, -oh. uh he had about a quarter of a page, a few pages back and a photo. And uh, I was mortified because it was like I had made him do this interview. And, um, and I, I, you know, and not that I had any control over this person. You never have control when a journalist tells you that's what's going to happen unless you get it in writing or something, a contract. But um, so I had to walk down to the stage, walking down the center aisle of the empty theater where they were sound checking and go up to the stage and call him to the edge of the stage and show him the paper and say, you know, I'm really sorry, David, you know? And I love that moment because he could have, you know, I've, I've seen other stars could slap you in the face and say, you idiot. Why did you ever let me bother? But he just went, eh, don't worry about it, Jerry. It's okay. Like that. And the way he took it so, easily and so the way he recognized already that this was not the biggest thing in life like when you're a big rock star 
you know, everything you do, you think is the big, this is what I've experienced with other big stars. Anyway, they think everything they do is big. And if you don't get it right, you should be fired or slapped in the face or you punished or, you know what I mean? They get ego. The fact that he just was, took it so easy and said, oh, it's okay. As if like, he didn't say it's no big deal, but as if like, this is not the end of the world, Jerry, it's just a newspaper, you know? I love that about him. And then of course, about a couple of hours or an hour or two, I forgot how long later, a special edition of the newspaper was put out and he was on the cover and it was all about him. <laughs> so, yeah. And so and then I was able to go to him and like I had scored. Now, he could have like slapped me in the face earlier in the day and then I, I'd come back to him with this and I'd be like, he'd have to have his tail between his legs. But instead, he, his attitude just made it all so made him so human. It was a human moment with him, a very human moment. And um, so I, that stands out in my mind a lot, that moment. So, um, yeah. But the night I had sex with him the first time was also really great. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you care to elaborate any more on that? Or <laughs> I did in my book. I, I did in my book. Um, it was just beautiful. I mean, the thing about David is that when you were with him and he was giving you his attention, if he had decided, you know, that that time was dedicated to you, he was really giving you his attention, whether that's just what a great actor he is or was. Um, but you really felt like you were making love. It wasn't just where well, you were the PR lady and working with him and you happened to be in the same hotel with him that night and, he hadn't picked up any other girl, so come on, let's go to bed, Jerry. <laughs> you know what I mean, um, it just—he um, made you really feel like he wanted to make love to you, and and that he adored it and was having a wonderful time. And it was nice. It was very um, touching and uh, intimate, and in in in. in in feelings. Now, if those feelings were genuine or he was just a great actor, I don't know. But in those moments, you don't care. <laughs> because <laughs> just, you know, just, yeah, baby, you know, uh, I'm having a great time too. So it was, it was just very lovely, very lovely. And, um, and kind of funny in a way you, you go back to my book, you can re read it because uh, read about the bandages. It was kind of funny, but, um, that's all I'll say. Um, but, uh, and there were a couple of other sexual times with him at my apartment or something, but um, they were all wonderful. They were wonderful. He was great to, you know, the other times that stand out, which I did write in the book about a lot with him when I had this apartment on 20th street, after I didn't work for main man anymore, Bowie was in his Coke period and I had hooked him up with Norman Fisher, who was the biggest best Coke dealer in New York and everything. And, um, he was at that point just doing tons of Coke, drinking only milk, not eating anything skinny as a rail, the thin white Duke. And, um, he was like sort of getting to be on the rocks with Tony different. Like it was coming to an, was, he needed somebody to talk to a lot. And so he would come over to my loft I had on 20th Street between 9th and 10th. He'd come over there and I didn't do coke. Rarely did I ever do coke. I was a pothead. And um, so we would stay up all night and not having sex. Once in a while we had sex, but rarely. Mostly it was just talking. And um, 
and he would do his coke all night and, and and drink his milk and I would drink coffee and smoke pot and stay up talking to him all night and and of course he talked to me about you know his feelings about you know cuz Tony it, it, it had come to that point where he felt you know giving Tony 50% wasn't cool or I don't know they were starting to have things although I think it all turned out all right in the end uh, uh, anyway but so he'd talk about that, about main man, what was going on, about things. But really, we'd talk about, you know, Alistair Crowley and um, Merlin and um, magic and psychedelics and spirituality. And he knew history a lot better than I did. So he would talk about Hitler and it, a lot of things. He'd educate me on a lot of things and other things I knew about and, you know, um, astrology and witchcraft and you know things like that so they were wonderful times with him because you know he was on coke so he would just go on and on and on out into the stratosphere with his mind you know and I was sitting there smoking my pot so everything just seemed magical and <laughs> fabulous to me and um and I, I, I that they were wonderful moments they were wonderful moments and I didn't work for him anymore so I had now had the experience of meeting him as a fellow artist and a friend and then being a worker for him and now back to being a friend, an artist, fellow artist kind of friend with him. So I didn't have the rules that maybe I had to play by or set for myself when I worked for him and stuff. So it was kind of a, a freeing of our relationship in a way too. It was like, and you know, while I worked for him, I, I couldn't say anything bad or negative about main man or, and, uh, and about some people we worked with but now I was just a friend. So, you know, those things, the rules weren't there for me anymore. So that was wonderful moments. Yeah. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. 
And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Did you follow David's career after you stopped working with him at Main Man? Isn't it fantastic how he did his whole death and was an artist right till the end? And oh God, I just, I couldn't believe what he did with that last album. Oh, with Black Star. I mean, it, it's supernatural almost. I mean, it, it, or not almost. I think it is supernatural how he... He he orchestrated that on on his terms. It's it's incredible. I know. I know, and it's just I can't put it on without you know. Yeah, I've only listened to the album twice because I just break down crying when he's saying, "Look at me, I'm in heaven." I'm like, oh, you know, it's just too much. It's just too much. You know, I tried to sing Heroes on stage one night in a little show we did in Hollywood, and I broke down crying on stage. I couldn't even sing it. It was just, it was, it was only about three weeks after he died. It was just too fresh, I guess. And I hadn't really cried. Uh, and all of a sudden it all hit me, you know. But what an iconic life right till the end, doing that album and that play and everything. I never got to see the play. Did you see the play? No, I York? wish I did. I, w- I would have loved yeah. to if I couldn't get tickets. Oh, uh, you didn't know me then. <laughs> I couldn't have got. I probably couldn't have gotten your tickets anyway because I didn't really have any relationship with him for the last I don't know thirty years or something. Though when I did, um, I did ask for. There was a, um, you know, I used to do those My World columns by David Bowie from yeah. Miracle Magazine. Yeah. So when somebody wanted to um, publish a book, Hatchet Publishing in Paris wanted to publish a book of them. And um, they they put they sent me this the sample book and um, whatever you call that first book you get and um, they had used what Bowie wrote on his website about them as like a forward and I said well you can't just do this you have to ask permission I mean surely that's his copyright he wrote that on his so they said oh will you ask him and I hadn't you know spoken to him in all those years and um, I didn't speak to him then but. I I must say I called his manager of the time and within 24 hours they called back and said oh sure he said go ahead use them so that was you know lovely uh, although I wasn't you know I wish that I had had more contact with him over the years but you know people move on they move on I love those so, those those pieces you wrote. They're so fun. They're so well written. I, <laughs> and I love when you put in like my my incredible publicist, Cherry Vanell. I love when you put the little <laughs> shout outs to yourself. And you know, there was no I didn't I wasn't even very much of an accomplished writer in any way yet. And there was no time. I wrote those in the back of limos and taxis. There was no editing. There was no nothing that, you know. They were just fast as they could. I could write them down and give them to a typist or type them up myself if I was in the office. 
and just make up things. And sometimes I'd have like a phone conversation with him and try to find out what he was doing that week and, and incorporate it. But half the time I just had to make them up, but, <laughs> but yeah, they were fun and they were just, you know, they were for a teenage girl audience, you know, not preteens actually. That magazine was aimed at like 11, 12 year old girls. What a great audience to build. Right. So. <laughs> Speaking of writing your memoir, Lick Me is amazing it's filled with so many fascinating stories and it's amazing how candid and intimate you are like you really went there and got into so many tough and vulnerable moments i really love the book god i wish i had a million more fans like you <laughs> <laughs> i mean i didn't sell that many books you know and uh, but then again i don't try i mean i'm you know, it's funny because publicity was, you know, like sex to me in the early days. I, I, I loved doing publicity for other people and myself. But, you know, I kind of, it's almost like when I gave up sex, I gave up publicity. I kind of like went the other way. Like, you know, I I kind of hide now, you know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> I don't have to hide because I, I can be totally unrecognizable in the world, you know, which I love that. And so... Uh, it's funny. I'm like, not that I'm anti-publicity, but I love to do interviews like this once in a while. But, um, you know, uh, I don't like my friend Pamela DeBars, who got me the, the agent to, to do the book. She really milks her books. I mean, she writes one book after another and then she goes on and she has, she teaches women's writing classes and she goes on these things where you sign pictures of yourself and sell them for $10 and, and bless her heart, I really admire her for doing that. But I was like, yeah, the book was done. It's done. It's out there. Now, though, some people are trying to make a, a movie of it or a TV show. So now my energy is going there. I'm trying to um, give them ideas, help them. Um, and uh, so we'll see what happens. That is so cool. How's that going? Well, you know, that could take forever. Yeah. Uh, the guy who's trying to do it, he's produced one movie, uh, Freak Show. Did you ever see Freak Show? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, he, with Bette Midler. He, he, Brian Rabin. He, he ran Club Cherry. He's famous event person in rock and roll. He had Club Cherry and, oh, God, he just had a Giorgio at the Standard and for years. And and he um, he I gave him the rights to to sell it. Now I know how Hollywood goes and I think he has great tenacity and he's the person I would want to be the producer because he, he really gets me and he knows he lived through the whole thing and he, he really gets the whole period. And, and, um, he's a little younger than me, but he, he, he gets it all. He's got incredible tenacity and incredible connections because all those years that he ran those clubs, and did those events, you know, he was in charge of, you know, who got behind the velvet rope, who got on the list. So a lot of people who he recognized something in back then, they were young fledglings, since became agents, writers, producers, directors, you know what I mean? Stars, actors in Hollywood, rock stars, stars. So he has a lot of great connections with the people I like in that in that whole world, I love his circle of people that he's recognized, like Norman Reedus, and you know people I find really, I don't know, just on a level of artistry that I appeal to me, and um, so he's out there doing it now. I know it'll get done one day. I would love it to happen before I die, so I could go 
you know, enjoy premieres and, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. But it, it might not get done till after I die. And I don't know if they'll get to make it a movie or a TV series. I don't know. They're, they're trying and they're hooking up with, uh, I talked to, I'm not allowed to name her yet, but I talked to one producer via Zoom, via a Zoom meeting, and she's pretty big. She's produced a lot of TV stuff and movies. And she's very interested. You know, it's some people don't get it that, you know, why was I with all of these unbelievable people all my life? You know, why me is kind of an interesting story, you know? And um, I don't know. I, I know they'll find the right people and click with them eventually. And this producer, she, I think now they found the writer who uh, will do what they call the Bible. And he's thinking more movie. I think it needs to be a TV series because by the time you get all those people in there who are famous, who I've had something to do with, I don't know. It's kind of a long movie, but I don't know. Well, I don't care how they do it. And I told them I'll help them. I've been like, anytime I think of a little scene in my head, I send it to them. Not, I don't think I'm capable really of writing the screenplay about myself. I think it needs an objective writer and blah, blah, blah. And I've never really written a screenplay except in school and stuff. So, um, but they asked me if I would like write scenes when I think of them and send them to them just to kind of give them idea. And I do that. And I, and like now they're trying to get to the essence of the cell of me, the hook, like what's, what's the essence of me that they can sell to a network or something. So I'm always trying to give them little ideas about that too. Like the intimacy thing. That's why I was talking to you about it when we first got on. Cause that's what I had been thinking about. What was it about? You know, I was looking at the Bowie movie and I was thinking, what was it about me that would make like a young girl now think she would want to have my life? Because uh, I wasn't the biggest star in the world. True. I wasn't the, you know, biggest uh saint Teresa or scholarship uh scientist or you know whatever um but but i think the intimacy that i had mentally and sexually with men is of interest to young women now because i think women want to have that intimacy with men and be able to have that it doesn't have to just be sexual between a woman and a man it's great when you can collaborate on things and write songs together and you know do radio interviews together <laughs> and um you know having that kind of without you know the threat that there has to be sex uh, at the at, at the end of a night from either the man or the woman that's I, it's a new kind of intimacy i think it's kind of cool so anyway but they will make it one day i truly believe in my heart they will get this thing made but i hope i'm alive because I want to go to the parties. <laughs> Off the Record is a production of iHeartRadio. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You ever get that feeling like the concrete jungles closing in? You crave wide open spaces, the chance to chase your own dinner, or just breathe clean air. Well, listen up. There's a whole world out there waiting, and finding your piece of it just got easier. Head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, you name it. Search by acreage, price, location. They've got it all. No matter what kind of wild dream you're chasing, land.com can help you find the ground to make it a reality. So quit dreaming. Head over to land.com, find your open space, and get out there.